0: Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse, and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way, I have, of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I... Ah, oh, God! This is hard to read. Okay, I'll admit right from the start, I have tried and failed on numerous occasions to read Herman Melville's Moby Dick. The story of Captain Ahab's relentless pursuit of the white whale that bit off his leg has been heralded by many as the great American novel and Despite the fact that I'm not sure I've met anyone who has actually read it, the book has undoubtedly left its mark on our culture. Did you know, for example? That modern-day electronica artist Moby chose his stage name as an homage to his great-great-great-granduncle, the author Herman Melville. Or that Moby has written music for those hipster albums they play at Starbucks, a coffeehouse chain that was named after Captain Ahab's first mate. I can't fully explain why Moby Dick has become such a part of our national fabric, but if I had to guess, I imagine it's in part due to the intense fascination many of us seem to have with the creature at the heart of the tale, one of those mysterious, awe-inspiring, and shockingly intelligent giants of the deep that we call whales. Hi, I'm Nate Hinchy, and this is Cool Shit, the podcast This is a show about interesting topics from science, history, the arts, and more. In other words, if it fascinates me, I'm going to talk about it. I know that the world can sometimes seem like an awfully depressing place. But trust me when I say, there's some pretty cool shit out there. Before we get into where whales come from, let's cover the Moby Dick origin story first. Melville had two primary sources of inspiration for his novel. The first is the real-life story of Mocha Dick, an albino sperm whale who had escaped more than a hundred attempts on his life and destroyed his fair share of whale boats. Despite being described by one seaman as, quote, white as wool, unquote, the whale had earned the nickname Mocha Dick because it was often spotted off of Mocha Island, a small patch of land just off the coast of Chile. But since that is confusing as hell without context, Melville rightly went with Moby instead. The second piece of inspiration was the story of the whale ship Essex. In 1820, the Essex was hunting whales in the South Pacific, about 2,000 miles off the coast of South America. After going days without seeing anything the crew finally spotted an enormous sperm whale, about 85 feet long, according to the men who had escaped the ordeal with their lives. For comparison, the Essex was only 88 feet long. Shortly after it appeared, the whale came speeding at the Essex and rammed her. The ship was damaged, but still seaworthy. The whale swam off a few hundred yards into the distance, and then turned to face the Essex again. It rammed the ship once more, thrashing its tail against the deck and ripping the vessel to pieces. The whale then disappeared, leaving the Essex slowly sinking. The 20 crew members outfitted three smaller whale boats and abandoned the Essex. The captain wanted to head towards the Marquesas, a nearby chain of islands, but his crew had heard stories of cannibals that lived there, and so they insisted that they make for South America instead. Ironically, the men began to starve on the much longer journey to the coast and resorted to cannibalism themselves. Only 8 of the 20 men would survive. And if you feel bad for those guys, just wait until we get to the end of the podcast. Your tune might change a little. But for now, let's get back to the beginning. First off, it's important to note that whale, just like the word tree for those who follow the podcast, isn't a scientific term per se. Whales are part of the infra-order Cetacea, which also includes dolphins and porpoises. And the lines between them are kind of blurry. For example, killer whales, or orcas, are actually part of the dolphin family, despite the name. But dolphins and killer whales are also part of the parv-order Odontoceti, which includes toothed whales that aren't part of the dolphin family. I debated whether to include an in-depth examination of the Linnaean system of taxonomy here, but my gut tells me that wouldn't make for very gripping storytelling, so I settled on just calling them whales. I won't talk specifically about dolphins or porpoises, but if I encounter any cool shit about killer whales, I make no such promises. Whales are the descendants of land-dwelling mammals. About 50 million years ago, they turned to their closest relatives, the hippopotamuses, and said, screw this, guys, we're headed back to the ocean. At first, they just put a toe in the water. Literally, the first whales had feet, which makes total sense, but is still really weird to think about. It took about 5 to 10 million years for whales to evolve into fully aquatic creatures. And since then, they have become the kings of their watery domain. Now, far be it from me to say that size is all that matters. But at some point, when it's big enough, everything else just sort of takes a backseat. And whales can be huge. Huge. The blue whale, for example, is the largest animal to have ever lived. Scientists estimate that adult blue whales can grow to be 100 feet in length and weigh close to 400,000 pounds. To put that in perspective, the biggest dinosaur known to have existed, a titanosaur, weighed in at a measly 150,000 pounds. And I don't care how great its personality was or what kind of car it drove— It wasn't even in the same league as the blue whale, which, on a totally unrelated topic, also has a 10-foot-long penis. You can get a sense of how truly big these things are if you've ever visited the Museum of Natural History in New York City. One of the museum's halls has this 94-foot-long model of a blue whale hanging from the ceiling. Now, I've probably been to that museum three times in my life, and on every single visit, I've gone to look at the whale. But it wasn't until I was doing the research for this podcast that I learned it was made out of fiberglass. Which, and I don't know why, totally took me by surprise. Every person I've told that fact to has responded the same way. They ask me, well, what did you think it was made out of? I don't know, people. I guess I wasn't thinking. If I had been, I would have known that it obviously wasn't a real whale carcass swinging from the rafters. Maybe I thought it was a real whale skeleton with papier-mâché on it, but of course, in hindsight, that is just as ridiculous. I suppose I just wanted to believe it was real. But I've sacrificed that childlike innocence on the altar of this podcast. So you're welcome. Blue whales don't hold all the records, though. Sperm whales, which again are the inspiration for Moby Dick, and are probably the silhouette most of us think of when someone mentions a whale... They've got the biggest brain in the animal kingdom, weighing in at just under 20 pounds. And yes, sperm whales were so named because the first people to encounter them thought that the yellowish wax they store in their head was their semen. So, in my mind, it is perfectly acceptable to giggle anytime anyone says sperm whale. Sperm whales are also the loudest whale in the ocean, able to produce sounds up to 230 decibels. Now, sound obviously works a bit different in water than it does in air, but that's still louder than a jet engine at takeoff. Humpback whales, on the other hand, have the largest vocal range, able to produce songs from 20 to 9,000 hertz. But we'll go deeper into whale songs a bit later. Bowhead whales in the Arctic Oceans usually live the longest, upwards of 200 years. Cuvier's beaked whale, or the goose-beaked whale, has been deeper in the ocean than any mammal besides humans able to dive almost two miles below the surface and stay there for several hours. And while the blue whale certainly isn't jealous of many of its fellow cetaceans, it might feel a little inferior when swimming next to a southern right whale, whose males sport the largest testicles in the world, weighing in at around 1,100 pounds each. By the way, if you're thinking that this episode is getting a little too genital-centric for your tastes, I'll have you know, I didn't even mention the narwhal, whose protruding 5-10 to foot long tusks easily make them the most phallic-looking whales in the world. Given all of this, it should come as no surprise that whales, absent human intervention, are usually left to live their lives in peace. And long before it came into fashion with hippies and Hollywood moms, whales were starting those lives via water birth. Baby whales are born tail-first, to prevent them from drowning during delivery. And whale mothers, also called cows, though that's probably the last thing she needs to hear at that exact moment, must quickly help the newborn to the surface so that it can take its first breath. Like all mammals, whale babies feed on their mother's milk. But since they can come out of the gate pretty big, a newborn blue whale, for example, can weigh around 15,000 pounds and grow a rate of 8 pounds per hour, 2% milk isn't really going to cut it. Instead, whale milk can be up to 50% fat, and its consistency has been likened to toothpaste or cottage cheese. That was one of the first things I learned about whales, and I still haven't decided which metaphor is grosser. But even on this kind of diet, baby whales don't have a thick enough layer of blubber to survive in cold waters. So before giving birth, whale moms usually migrate to warmer climates. The humpback whale, for instance, usually feeds in the icy waters near the poles, but will travel as far as 6,000 miles to reach their subtropical breeding grounds. This trip, which can take six to eight weeks of non-stop swimming, is the longest known migration of any mammal on Earth. Baby whales stick with their mothers for one or two years, depending on the species, before setting out on their own. And if you're wondering where Dad is in this story... Whale papas, also called bulls, play no part in raising their offspring. This may be because some male whales, particularly members of the gray whale species, are busy having what are called slip-and-slide orgies. Anywhere from two to five bulls will rub their bellies together in order to stimulate their genitals. Scientists believe this homosexual behavior helps with bonding, to which I will just say, whatever makes you happy, gray whales. Outside of reproduction, a whale's primary focus is eating. Which, to be fair, you could really say about all of us. Whales, especially the colossal ones, need to take in an enormous amount of food to maintain their body weight. I made a passing reference to this before, but there are basically two kinds of whales, the toothed and the baleen varieties. Toothed whales, as the name implies, have a set of teeth, and usually eat fish or squid, though some types like killer whales will also hunt seals, sharks, seabirds, and even other whales. Baleen whales, on the other hand, have baleen, essentially these huge filters in their mouth made out of keratin, which is a protein that also makes up most of human hair. Baleen whales are generally the bigger of the two, but strangely enough, choose to eat some of the smallest animals in the ocean. Blue whales, for example, feed exclusively on tiny crustaceans called krill. Now, a single krill is usually about one to two centimeters long, but what they lack in size, they make up for in sheer quantity. A single species of krill, if you smushed them all together, has a collective biomass of just under a trillion pounds. So what a blue whale will do when it sees this horde swimming by is channel its inner Mitch Hedberg. I like rice. Rice is great when you're hungry and you want 2,000 of something. (laughs) (sighs) I miss Mitch. Anyway, blue whales will suck in huge amounts of water into their mouth, along with millions of krill. Then they'll push all of that water back out. The baleen filter lets the water through, but traps the krill. And because a whale's mouth is so specialized, they can't breathe through it. Instead, that's the purpose of the blowhole which is basically a nostril usually situated on the top of a whale's head. If you've ever been whale watching and have seen a whale spouting or shooting a bunch of water up into the air, that's the whale exhaling. It then sucks in an enormous amount of air back into its lungs, and a set of muscles around the blowhole contracts, sealing off the nostril and preventing excess water from getting in once it dives. In a single breath, a sperm whale can take in enough oxygen to be able to swim beneath the surface for 90 minutes. The longest a human has ever held his breath, for comparison, is 19 minutes, which still seems unreal to me, since I tried it and I could barely do 35 seconds. I can't, however, eat six saltine crackers in a minute, so I've got that going for me at least. Now, most mammals, including us, don't have to tell their bodies to breathe. We just sort of do it. But because whales don't want to randomly start sucking in air when they're underwater, they have to breathe consciously instead which does pose a bit of a problem when it comes to sleeping. We don't know exactly how whales do it, but based on what we've observed from whales in captivity, the best guess is that they can sleep half of their brain at a time, allowing one lobe to get some rest, while the other keeps them swimming, breathing, and generally aware of any dangers in their surroundings. And there are a handful of dangers. Again, we'll get into human whale hunting later, but in the wild, smaller whales like narwhals and belugas have some natural predators. Killer whales will usually team up and hunt other whales as a pack, surrounding their prey and then ramming them repeatedly with their heads until the whale dies. Polar bears will also occasionally hunt whales by lying in wait on an ice shelf, though if the whale can get out into open water, the bear is usually SOL. Larger whales, like Big Blue, can live up to a 100 years. In 2007, a bowhead whale, another large baleen, was caught off the coast of Alaska with a harpoon still lodged in its body. When experts examined the harpoon, they determined that it had been manufactured sometime between 1879 and 1885, meaning that the whale was potentially up to 130 years old when it was finally killed. In the decades since the discovery, scientists have found other bowhead whales, that they now believe lived to be over 200 years old. And when it finally comes time for a whale to shuffle off this mortal coil, they breathe their last and then slip silently into the deep. When a whale carcass lands on the ocean floor, it can feed more than 185 scavenger species for several decades. Marine biologists call this kind of death a whale fall. And if you're anything like me, You will never again be able to sing Adele's Skyfall without subbing in those words. So we've established that whales are big, but they're also crazy smart and highly social. Like I said before, killer whales hunt in packs. Off the coast of Norway, these orcas have been observed working together to herd schools of herring into a tight ball. The orcas will then slap this ball with their tail, stunning the fish and allowing them to eat their dinner at a leisurely pace. Humpback whales have a similar strategy. They will locate a school of fish, and instead of attacking it headlong, will swim underneath the fish in a ring formation, blowing bubbles up towards the surface. This ring of bubbles acts as a net, trapping the fish within it. The humpbacks will slowly contract the bubble net until a fellow whale swims up through the bottom of the ring to snatch a mouthful of fish. Some humpbacks have tweaked the bubble net method by slapping the surface of the water, sort of like the orcas do. This is known as lobtail feeding. And what's really interesting about it Is that it was first observed being done by a single whale off the coast of Maine in 1980. Thirty years later, more than 40% of the local humpback whale population had adopted the method. It's unclear if this behavior is actually more advantageous than not slapping the surface of the water, but it's spreading anyway. It can maybe best be described as a tradition. And while that doesn't seem particularly noteworthy to us at first glance, it's one of the few examples we have of non-primates engaging in what's called cultural transmission, or the teaching of a new behavior to the next generation. Still, maybe the most astonishing indicator of whale intelligence is how they communicate with one another. In my very first podcast, I talked about how Carl Sagan, in defending his decision to include whale songs on the Voyager spacecraft's golden record... Likened the amount of information those songs contain to great human epics like the Iliad and the Odyssey. Humpback songs, for example, can last up to 30 minutes. And just so we're clear, this isn't a case of a whale just making random noises for half an hour like some kind of crazy person. Whales will sing the same song over and over. Other whales will pick up the tune, mimicking it, but making small changes as well. And over time, the song evolves much like a story does. Here's a sampling of what a humpback song sounds like. To paraphrase a Bill Nye meme, if you don't think that's just the coolest shit ever, well, you might as well give up on this whole podcast series right now. Whale vocalization serves a variety of purposes. Some whales use it as a form of echolocation, a way of mapping their surroundings and identifying sources of food or possible threats. Some songs are warnings to other whales, like when a bull notices another encroaching on his territory and he wants to let the intruder know that he can either haul ass or face the consequences. And some whales sing for love, either to attract mates or maybe just to get in on some good old-fashioned slip-and-slide fun. Like I mentioned before, whales vocalize at a variety of frequencies. Blue whales can sing as low as 14 hertz, which is well below what humans can hear. But because their songs are so deep, they can communicate with other blue whales up to 100 miles away. Scientists believe that before human noise pollution, blue whale songs could be heard more than 1,000 miles away. Sperm whales, which communicate through a series of clicks rather than the songs we heard before, even have regional dialects. A sperm whale from the Caribbean, for instance, will sound different than a sperm whale from the Galapagos. Most scientists readily admit that there's a great deal we still have to learn about whale songs, But the fact that whales have accents used to help identify friends and distinguish outsiders is further evidence that whales have culture, much as we humans do. Now, this next anecdote is a bit of a bummer, but I couldn't help including it. In 1989, researchers at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute on Cape Cod first heard a whale singing at the frequency of 52 hertz, which even though it's roughly the equivalent of the lowest note on a tuba, is still much higher than the songs of most large whales. Since then, that whale has been heard every year since, but only from a single source. The whale has never actually been spotted, so scientists can only guess why it sings at such an unusual frequency. But because it does, there's a good chance it has never been heard by any other whale, and maybe has never heard any of its own kind either. The poor creature has been dubbed the loneliest whale in the world. Here is its call. But whale sounds take a turn into the sort of terrifying when it comes to their interaction with humans. In early 2018, a team of international researchers released the results of a study in which they tried to teach a killer whale to replicate human speech. Here is a recording of Waikie the Whale. Hello? One, two, three. (coughs) One, two, three. Now I know what you're thinking. One, some of those are just fart noises. And two, dogs can do that. With enough patience and food, you can basically train an animal to do anything. But here's a recording of Nosi, a beluga whale that lived in captivity and spontaneously began mimicking human speech. <laughs> So obviously, there were no actual words in that clip, but it reminded me of a short film that was meant to convey what English sounds like to non-English speakers. Here again, there are no words, just an attempt to mimic the sound of the language. Did you fly by the long black call? Yeah, I couldn't buy the language. I played that private by the wrong front line today. Oh, the raising man with the ashmarine. For me you grade that treason. No, station is trapped. I mean, why the Crest Soldier for the Magdalene Nation is further grat to my Chosy. Chose for the Magdalene? Magdalene, my shit. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it could just be that whales are very good at imitating sounds. But given what we know, I guess I want to believe that they're trying to strike up a conversation. In the grand scheme of things, Whales and humans are pretty recent acquaintances. For a very long part of human history, whales were the stuff of legends. In Inuit mythology, Raven, a godlike figure, sees a beached whale and asks the Great Spirit how he can help the creature. The Great Spirit tells Raven he must seek out special mushrooms in the forest in order to gain the strength to drag the whale back out to sea and restore order to the world. The story is called Raven and the Whale, but it's more widely known as the greatest excuse a kid has ever come up with when his mom finds his stash of shrooms in the storage space above the garage. An Icelandic myth tells the tale of a man who threw a stone at a whale, hitting it in the blowhole and killing it. As penance, the man was commanded not to go to sea for 20 years. So, of course, after 19 years of avoiding the water... The dude decides to go fishing one day, and a whale murders him. Some Vietnamese fishermen see whales as their guardian angels, worshipping them at temples that house the remains of sacred cetaceans. When a dead whale washes up on the shores of these Vietnamese fishing villages, the locals will honor them with elaborate funeral processions, complete with musicians, costumes, stilt walkers, and dragon dancers. And of course, whales feature prominently in the Hebrew Bible often referred to as leviathans or sea monsters. The most famous reference is the Book of Jonah, in which the eponymous prophet is swallowed and then vomited back up three days later by a great fish, the inspiration for which was most likely a whale. Men have been hunting whales long before they knew what to call them, for at least 4,000 years, as they transition into the part of the podcast where we humans start to look like total shitbirds. Of course, it was a little more defensible in the early days, when aboriginal groups would hunt whales largely for food. By the way, if you've ever wondered how Inuit people who live in the frigid north manage not to get scurvy despite having zero fruit in their diet, whales are again the answer. Muktuk, a dish made mostly of whale skin and the top layer of blubber, has about as much vitamin C, ounce for ounce, as orange juice. But as you might expect, things took a turn for the worse when humans discovered that whales were an exceptional source of oil. Whale oil is distilled from blubber, and it was used mostly in lamps, but also to make soap and margarine. Demand skyrocketed in the 18th and 19th centuries, and a massive whaling industry emerged to meet the need. While the United States came late to the field, it quickly grew to be the preeminent whaling nation in the world. Sailing out of the harbors of Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard and New Bedford, American whalers would embark on journeys that could last several years or more. The whaling ships would first travel to breeding or feeding grounds. At first, whalers targeted humpbacks and right whales, which were found near the American coast. But as these populations declined, the hunters were forced to travel farther and pursue different kinds of whales. The sperm whale, in particular, was highly prized as the spermaceti wax in their head burns unusually bright. Whale spotters would catch sight of whales when they surfaced to breathe, or when they breached, which is when they launch themselves up out of the water and then belly flop on the surface. I don't really have time to get into why whales breach, but suffice to say, we have a lot of theories, but don't know for sure. It might be communicative, but some scientists think that whales just do it for fun. Anyway, once a whale was spotted, a segment of the crew would move from their main ship to a smaller longboat. They would then row within a few dozen yards of the whale, which unfortunately for the whale wasn't all that hard to do. Rather than swim away, many whales evolved to circle the wagons, if you will, grouping together to ward off predators. It works really well when dealing with a shark or a killer whale, less so when your predator has a harpoon that they can launch from a distance. Once a whale had been harpooned, its flight instinct would finally kick in. But for the most part, it was too late. So long as the men could hold on to the line, the whale would drag the longboat behind it, sometimes reaching speeds upwards of 25 miles per hour. The whale might tow the boat for hours, before it would finally succumb to exhaustion, at which point the whalers would reel in the line and finish the job. Whaling was incredibly dangerous for the men who did it, and plenty died, but it was nowhere near the amount of carnage that was inflicted upon the whales. Between 1700 and 1900, more than 300,000 sperm whales were hunted and killed, which is to say nothing of the hundreds of thousands of other whales also killed during those two centuries. During the 20th century, with the advent of diesel engines and exploding harpoons, the numbers increased exponentially. Scientists estimate that 3 million whales were killed from 1900 to 1999, nearly 70% of all sperm whales and almost 90% of all blue whales. In 1982, with a number of species on the brink of extinction, the International Whaling Commission finally instituted a moratorium on commercial whale hunting. That moratorium remains in effect to this day, though nations like Norway and Japan continue to flaunt international law, often using loopholes designed for scientific research to boost their harvests. And this is to say nothing of the practice of holding whales in captivity, forcing them to perform tricks for drunken tourists as the whales slowly go insane. But this is getting super dark, and as much as these issues deserve attention and action, I want to try and stay positive here. So instead, let me say that in 2008, more than 13 million people around the world went whale watching. An industry devoted to appreciating the wonder of these animals makes more than $2 billion annually. An industry devoted to killing them makes only $31 million annually. Some species may never fully recover, and others may take generations to bounce back, but whale populations across the board. Are increasing and in 2013 two musicians from Winnipeg built an underwater sound system in order to play music for beluga whales off the northern coast of Manitoba the musicians hoped the whales might want to sing along and the belugas were more than happy to oblige despite all that we've done to whales they are in the end still willing to jam with us And you've got to admit, that's some pretty cool shit. Thank you all for listening. If you liked what you heard, well, I'd just be as giddy as a schoolboy if you rate, review, subscribe to, and share cool shit. You can also drop us a line either via email at CoolShitCast at gmail.com or on Twitter at CoolShitCast. Cool Shit's music is by Arnie bang Huseby. Thanks, Arnie. Until next time.